Welcome to Common Ground, a podcast series discussing new research and interesting projects in the field of complementary medicine. Hello, my name is Wendy McLean, educator at Vitally. Vitally is a digital platform, a health professional resource, and a distribution service all in one. Firstly, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation as the traditional custodians on the land on which we gather here. I would also like to pay my respect to their elders, both past, present, and emerging. There are at least 80 recognised autoimmune diseases, affecting as many as 1 in 20 people worldwide. However, the prevalence of autoimmune diseases has increased at an alarming rate over the past few decades. While the causes of autoimmunity are still not fully understood, patients with these autoimmune diseases seem to have a genetic vulnerability to certain environmental factors that could trigger these conditions. Today on Common Ground, I will be discussing the link between the NTHFR gene variations and autoimmunity with Carolyn Lodowski. Carolyn is the founder of the MTHFR Support Australia. She is a naturopath, herbalist and nutritionist who has bachelor degrees in herbal medicine, naturopathy and economics and she has advanced diploma of naturopathy and a diploma of nutrition. She has also studied courses in genetics at Duke University and the University of Maryland and she is currently completing a Bachelor of Health Science with honours in naturopathy. Carolyn now sees chronically ill patients from all over the world who have searched sometimes for decades to find the reason behind their ill health. Her strength lies in her ability to reveal layers of dysfunction and not give up until results are seen. Most of her patients have MTHFR mutations and or associated methylation disturbances. Her key passions are fertility, anxiety and depression. Her practice specialises in genetic susceptibility and how this contributes to biochemical dysfunction and chronic health conditions. We're very pleased to have Carolyn share her knowledge and experience with us today on Common Ground and we warmly welcome you, Carolyn. Thank you so much, Wendy. It's great to be here. I just have to add, um, I actually did finish my honours and I'm actually now doing a PhD. Oh, wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I'm doing that with UTS, which is really exciting on my fertility side. Oh, fantastic. Well, I wish you all the best with that. Um, Thank you. It's a big undertaking. (laughs) It certainly is. Yeah, so well, wonderful. That leads us right, right in then. So I guess if you could expand a bit more on your background and how did you come to specialise? in MTHFR? Yes, look, it's a, it's a funny story because I, I really liked to look at bloods and I still do. I think it can tell us a heck of a lot. And I used to test folate levels and I'd see half the people with high folate and half with low and I'd think, what's the significance of that? There's got to be a meaning in this. And when I rang the labs, they said, oh, that's, you know, I said, exactly what are you testing? And they said, derivatives of folate. And I said, yeah, but what does that mean? And they couldn't really tell me. So I'd I'd then go to my professors, I'd go to GPs, I'd have meetings with specialists and say, what's the significance of a high folate? And they all said, well, it's a good thing they're eating leafy green vegetables. And I thought, no. That's actually not what I'm seeing. That doesn't really compute. And I was at a conference in Adelaide and I'm, I'm literally going back 13 years and one of the presenters said off-the-cuff comment, 
uh, MTHFR is related to folate in the blood. And I thought, wow. So I went up to her after the presentation and said, what is MTHFR? And she said, it's a gene that regulates folate. And I said, how do I find more info? And she said, you just have to Google. And so I started and I started Googling and I was, I literally became obsessed because it led me into combinations of genes that affected folate. And then at the time, we didn't even have methylfolate in Australia. So I would bring samples from the US and put them in little plastic bags and give them to my patients if I saw that high level. Right. And then I started testing MTHFR because in those days you could do it with Medicare. And I started to see the levels coming down if I gave them a different form of folate. And I thought, aha. Uh-huh. And then they started to feel better and they started to fall pregnant and not have miscarriage. And I thought, wow. And then the more I de- delved into that, it got me into the other genetics and it sort of expanded from there. Wow, that's been quite a journey. So you said for 13 years when you first heard about it. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> oh, wow. And yeah, obviously a lot of research coming out now. And so can you just talk a little bit about what exactly is MTHFR? What is the gene? What is what is the mutations? Sure. So MTHFR stands for methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. And essentially, it's just a really long word for a gene that encodes an enzyme that allows us to make methylfolate or 5-methyltetrahydrofolate. Now, there are many genes involved in that folate pathway, everything from dihydrofolate reductase right down to MTHFR being the last step. And they're all involved in our ability to recycle our folates to create methylfolate But because the rate-limiting step is MTHFR, those people that have homozygous or two copies of a a gene polymorphism, they can have up to a 65% reduction in their ability to make methylfolate. And as we know, methylfolate is then instrumental to get that into the methionine cycle to make SAMe, our universal methyl donor. Yes. So there's... There's, there's actually a, about 30 MTHFR polymorphisms, but there's two sig- significant ones mainly in the research, and that's the C677T and the A1298C. Now, if someone has your, your parents, Wendy, randomly gave you one copy of each, you don't know, um, but let's say your parents both had one copy of the polymorphism. Yes you would get randomly one from mum, one from dad. Now, you could get two copies that are both mutated or polymorphic. You could get one or you could get none with that scenario. And so what we look at is what is the deficiency amount with each of the polymorphisms and therefore it gives us a really good idea. So if someone's trying to fall pregnant and they've had multiple miscarriages, Well, we can understand why because not only MTHFR but a lot of the other genes in that folate pathway are not working sufficiently. And if you can't methylate your DNA, you can't successfully have a child. 
because you were going going to miscarry. And that applies to dad as well because the male equally donates 50% of the DNA. So you've got to be assessing their ability for both of them to create methylfolate. And that's actually what my clinical trial will be doing. We'll be looking at how effective 5-methyltetrahydrofolate is versus folic acid in women with um, or couples with recurrent miscarriage. Wow, that's fantastic. That research has been yeah. needed. Oh, it's well overdue. <laughs> it is. It is. And, and it sort of then takes us to the folic acid story and it's part and parcel of this MTHFR, I guess, discussion because your, your folic acid is the synthetic man-made version of folate. It can't actually be used by the body unless the body decides that it can use it. And we find that there is a limit to the amount of folic acid that can be used. And studies say that roughly 200 to 300 micrograms a day is all that can go through that dihydrofolate reductase enzyme. So if it doesn't go through and people are having more, which we know they are because Originally, when fortification came into Australia in 2009, it was meant to only be bread. But it's now gone out to almost every product on the supermarket shelf. And when you think about kids are getting up and they're having breakfast for, uh, they're having cereal for breakfast that's fortified with folic acid, and they go off to school and they have a lunch, lunch with sandwiches, and then they have something out in a packet for morning tea or afternoon tea. And it just, the list goes on and on and on. So we're actually getting from fortification a lot more than we ever thought we should. Yeah. And the research says that over a certain amount, we get what's called unmetabolized folic acid. So it's not going anywhere. It's just building up in the blood. And there's been certain studies that have linked that with natural killer cell activity or reduced natural killer cell activity, um, autoimmune disease, cancer, um, all sorts of different, um, it's, it's, it's prevalent in almost all breast milk if women live in a fortified country. Now, the, some researchers suppose that it is actually down-regulating the MTHFR gene. So it's almost like a feedback inhibition system where it's saying, well, folate levels are too high let's inhibit MTHFR, but that's actually having catastrophic effect, not just from a fertility standpoint, but you think about anxiety, depression, immune function, detoxification. They're all potential issues and we don't know the full implications of this yet. And that's why these studies are really important because we have to know. And and unfortunately, Australia has one of the highest fortification rates of any country in the world. So the US fortifies with 100 micrograms per 100 milligrams of flour. We do 200. We're double. So we we need to know, we we absolutely need to understand if this is an issue or not. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so you've mentioned there, um, you touched on the, the role in immune function. And so it is associated with not just the fertility, but many health conditions as well. And so there are any specific links between MTHFR mutation and autoimmune disease? Yes, there are. And there's actually quite a few studies. They're not all 100% um, in terms of, yes, this is diagnostically absolutely the problem. But MS, um, lymphoma, um, thyroid, autoimmune thyroid disease, vitiligo is another one, right. um, Graves' disease, rheumatoid arthritis and SLE are all associated with it. But it's, it's more specifically where the research really comes to the fore is that it's the reduction in DNA methylation that is the real trigger. Yeah. And so when we look at MTHFR, because it does have such a significant effect on overall methylation levels, um, because it's supplying SAME or it's the, you know, together with B12, it is producing SAME. Yeah. And so it's more that this abnormal DNA methylation is the major concern. Yeah, so I understand that there's a direct effect of this hypomethylation on the T-cell response. Can you talk yes. a bit about that? Yes, and it's actually quite interesting because they've looked at certain drugs that inhibit DNA methylation and they've given them to mice and they've said, okay, what is the effect? And what they see is if, it, if methylation is inhibited, it decreases our CD4 T cells. They, it, they actually become responsive to normal stimuli. Right. And so that induces those self-class 2 MHC cells and that then sets off this auto-reactivity. And researchers have, in, um, as I said, researched this in mice where this change in methylation status and the effect of the CD4 T cells, they actually did develop a lupus-like disease. Right. And so it, what happens is this whole process overactivates our CD18, or it used to be called LFA-1. Um, it overactivates these, and they play a really critical role in the regulation of our immune system. So as a result, we get this auto-reactivity, we get these inflammatory conditions and we can get things like um, inflammatory bowel disease, psoriasis, diabetes and arthritis. And so we, we're getting a lack of methylation which causes this over-reactivity over and then the T-cells become auto-reactive and that induces autoimmune. It's actually quite interesting, the studies that, and, and obviously it's the DNA methyltransferase 1 that is critically important here. And as we age, you know, methylation is less. Stress, and as you said in your introduction, you know, autoimmune disease is, is increasing. There's no question. Yes. And I have to wonder whether it's, a lot of these things that we're talking about, like is it the folic acid fortification that's affecting our methylation? Are we now so stressed um, that we are using methyls that we can't replace? 
I read an interesting article that actually said MTHFR polymorphisms are becoming more, there's more people with them now because of the epigenetic change that yes. we're seeing. Yes, with all these environmental exposures to these toxins, your phthalates, your endocrine disruptors, yeah. Exactly, and toxicity is really key yes. because methylation is hugely affected and vice versa. If methylation is deficient, then you're going to be um, having problems with toxicity, particularly things like estrogen dominance. And I don't think there's anyone... On the world in the world now that isn't so doesn't have some level of estrogen dominance yes <laughs> and I think what really interests me um, is that we so we're seeing these floods and we know how we have an epidemic of people affected by mold in this country yes and mold actually creates an estrogen dominance because the glucuronidation pathway is reduced when there's exposure to mould because that's the pathway, the phase two pathway, that we have to eliminate mould out of the system. So you think about all these potential people that, and today we've got floods, um, you know, it's it's most of this country is affected by it and, and unfortunately so many people don't even realise. And I wonder if this is all going to be a trigger for immune problems going forward. Yes, I think the same as well. I see mould as a huge issue. Um, you know, I was up in the flood zones for um, early on for a couple of days and that was one of the main things. Um, the people who could go back to their homes, they were trying to clean this mould and, um, you know, not necessarily having gloves to wear or the correct masks. Um, no. Yeah, so I, I feel that there's going to be an epidemic of um, mould illness as well. 100%. Yeah. We have to stop this rain, Wendy. We do. We do. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, and so you've talked about, um, you know, the impact of stress as well. So there's a stress in our environment that potentially can interact with these genetic mutations. Um, so how would you actually test for the MTHFR mutations? Especially you uh, mentioned there's 30 different types. Yes, but if you you can either do it, we've got a we've got a test kit on our website yep. mthrsupport.com.au. You can just jump straight in. Yes. You can also go through your doctor, but it's not Medicare rebated now, so um, you can yeah. There's a variety of different ways, or you can do genetic testing. Ancestry DNA will pick it up. Many of the um, test kits in Australia will also have it as stock standard now. Right. And predominantly, they will they will test the two the C677T and the A1298C. Yes. The other variants, really, they're not testing at the moment just because there's not enough research to substantiate the fact that, you know, they're polymorphic and, and there's a problem. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah. So what can someone do that has an MTHFR mutation? Is there specific nutrients or dietary interventions that you would recommend? And particularly thinking about in this aspect of autoimmunity and detoxification. Yes, and it's look, it's really interesting if we go back to the whole, say, rheumatoid arthritis picture, there, there are also drugs. I think it's really important to remember that there are drugs that specifically reduce our folate pathway, yes. like methotrexate. Yes, that's a and, great point. Yes, so and you have things like um, 
procannonide, which is a, an antiarrhythmic, that is a DNA methyltransferase inhibitor. Right. Um, methotrexate inhibits dihydrofolate reductase. So unfortunately, it's not just, I think that that is a huge, we've got to remember that, that there are drugs that are specifically reducing these folate pathways. Yes. And I think in the, in the, in the um, case of cancer, you know, we've obviously got to be much more careful because we don't know the implications of folate. I mean, as I said, unmetabolized folic acid has been implicated in cancer, but have we actually seen any studies that implicate 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate in cancer? And the answer is no. So if you've got someone with um, rheumatoid arthritis, though, and they're on methotrexate, you have to ask yourself if that is the best fix. Yes. Because if we're saying that autoimmunity is progressive because of a reduction in DNA methyltransferases, um, then what are you doing with methotrexate? I mean, essentially, you're reducing methylation. You're stopping it. Yeah. So I think we've got to look at, you know, the autoimmunity side. I, I understand in cancer, just we just don't have enough information yet. But I think in, in autoimmunity and when we're given drugs like methotrexate, I think we have to be, we have to consider that maybe it's not the right strategy because you can improve their autoimmunity. And from my patient's perspective, we try and improve the methylation component. I mean, in, in conditions like psoriasis, also autoimmunity, um, you can get people have a bit of a flare if you push the um, folate too hard but you've just got to start the process going and get all the underlying biochemistry. So it's a long way of saying what you've really got to do is understand why they've got the problem in the first place. Yes. And it could be many different factors. For example, it's not just MTHFR. For us to use methylfolate, we need good levels of B12, B12 is what makes us uptake our folate. So if someone is vegan or vegetarian, not eating meat, then they are going to have a methylation deficiency. Creatine is one of the best methyl backups we have. 60% of all SAMe production on a daily basis goes towards making creatine. So if someone isn't eating meat or they're not getting creatine from their diet because of, say, gut issues, then are they potentially going to be deficient? The answer is yes. So there's so many different factors that we need to consider. The diet, the key factors for methylation are obviously folate, B12, B6, keeping homocysteine levels under control, choline. They're all incredibly important. And so I think you've got to look at diet. It has to be, you know, one of the first things. Moderating stress levels because the way that we are so stressed, particularly with all this COVID business and now the floods and everything else, yes, people are, you know, in that flight or fight mode and, you know, that's, that's creating really big issues apart from the fact that it is decreasing your B12 because your hydrochloric acid levels go down. I mean, there's so many knock-on effects. 
but stress eats and chews up metals. So if your homozygous MTHFR and you've got a 65% down regulation of your ability to make it, what stress does is put you in a deeper hole. And your ability to climb out of that hole, Wendy, is just not good enough. Yes. Yeah. So it's so complex. And so you've got the person sitting in front of you. So you're not only having to deal with, you know, this mutation and the methylation and all those biochemical cycles, you've got to deal with that stress as well. Um, yes. And so would, would there be certain other nutrients or herbs or say that you would use for that? Absolutely. And I think what we have our practitioner training programs, and this is exactly what we do. We say, okay, you've got the person in front of you, you've got 500 different tests. What do you do? Yes. (laughs) And so we look at, okay, let's, let's consider the genetic susceptibility, right? How much is that playing a part? What do we think are the holes in their ability to recover? Because let's face it, if someone is deficient with their methylfolate or deficient in folate, they're going to have a lifelong problem unless you plug that hole up. Then we say, is there anything environmentally that we think has influenced their methylation capacity? So the floods and the exposure to mould is a massive thing because mould and yeast inhibit this methionine synthase enzyme which allows you to use folate. So again, you can get autoimmunity, you can get um, problems with detoxification, you can get neurotransmitter issues. So you say, okay, is there anything environmentally that we need to look at? Yes. Now let's look at our bloods and let's understand what the bloods are telling us. So if you've got a low B12, um, it might be reflected in a continuing low white cell count. If your folate's low, it might be a high mean corpuscular volume. So there's varying things in the bloods. We need to look at thyroid function. We need to look at iron. We need to look at all the basics. Yes. And then we look at any other results that we think would be significant, like perhaps an organic acids test or whatever it happens to be, or a Dutch test to look at their hormones. Yes. And then we say, right, what is the key symptom that this person is presenting with and how do those each of those influences affect that? And what's the first thing we need to do? Yes. <laughs> and for us, mood and anxiety trumps all. So that will always be the factor that I will look at number one. Right. I need to get the anxiety down and I need to get the mood up. Yes. And by understanding your B12 and your folate and what your dopamine genes are doing and serotonin genes can actually give you massive clues. Yes. So, yeah, there's a, to answer your question, I don't know <laughs> yes. if I've answered it. To well, do- certainly you gave uh, lots of good information there. But, yeah, I just absolutely, I, I love that idea and that approach that, yeah, dealing with the mood and the anxiety is number one. Yes, because then you can go on and look at, you know, if someone has then got rheumatoid arthritis or psoriasis or autoimmune, you know, diabetes or whatever it happens to be, then you've got to approach that on an individual basis and say, all right, we think, particularly rheumatoid arthritis, I think it's a big one, because if they they are on methotrexate, I really want to work with their doctors getting them off it. Right. And if I can dampen down the symptoms, 
look at, you know, their fat-soluble nutrients, their A, D, E and K and zinc and copper and everything else that we want, then and, and they start feeling better and you start to put a bit of folate in and they're not, you know, hyper-reactive, then that for me is a really good sign that we're on the right path. Absolutely, yeah. And it's interesting too that, you know, SLE, you know, the, the age of onset is 40 years of age. Yes. And it, so it's quite late and I think it's probably at an age where we don't methylate as well as we should. You know, you've gone through your 30s, particularly as a female, you've had kids and often one after the other after the other. What does that use? Folate. And and so, you know, you can be nutrient depleted too. And then if you've got MTHFR on top, then the ability, as I said, the ability to get yourself out of the hole is much harder. Yes. And and that would certainly seem to make sense because we do see a lot of these autoimmune conditions having a dominance in females. Yes. Like you say, with SLE coming on at that later age. Yes, exactly. And and even the, the amount of women we see who have autoimmune um, thyroid issues. Yes. You know, it's really it whether or not it's our subset of the population, but pretty well all our fertility patients with particularly homozygous MTHVR have autoimmune thyroid issues right you know they've got all the and they've got elevation in ANA antibodies and not so much the ENA so if we see the ANA and the ENA not elevated then we know that we can reverse that or, or at least get it to the point where it doesn't become a problem anymore yes yes Oh, that's really interesting. Uh, Yeah, and I just, uh, look, it's so important because, you know, people tend to have these clusters of autoimmune diseases as well. Um, So if you can work out what's going on and if you've got any chance of dampening it, um, then that's fantastic. And I think, I mean, inflammation, as you know, is absolutely key. Yes. And it's upregulating pathways that shouldn't be upregulated for long periods of time. And so, you know, you've got to also look, I think the environmental factor is massive. Because if you've basically got inflammation, infection or LPS, it's setting off inflammatory pathways that, you know, should not be set off for, for months and months and months and months and sometimes years. And then you get the histamine side effects and everything goes awry because histamine is a signaling molecule. Nitric oxide is upregulated. It's a signaling molecule. So these signaling molecules are all doing the opposite of what they really need to be doing and they're offsetting other things and taking the focus away from methylation. Absolutely. And I think, unfortunately, um, people are just not aware of their environmental exposures and the cumulative Mm. load that they're unwittingly exposed to. Um, So I think a big part of our job is, you know, education and empowering these people to, um, yeah, reduce their environmental exposure. And and as you very rightly said, you know, the amount of toxin exposure that we have is far and above anything else that we've ever experienced um, it's it's not just what we're eating, but it's what we're breathing in, and it's you know the fumes in our house and the mold and the lime and whatever else we get exposed to, and with that comes then phase two detox issues, yes, which and phase three, you know this, I like you know the bile. I, I I'm amazed at 
I just did a webinar um, last week on fatty acids and bile, and I'm I'm astounded the amount of people who have the disturbed fatty acids, and it's because bile is just not moving. Yes. And, you know, even having CBS pathway issues where you're not making taurine or having methylation issues where you're not making phosphatidylcholine, these all have knock-on effects, I think, for our immune system generally. Yes. And the more toxins we have, the more off-kilter our immune system gets. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm just thinking, yeah, the air pollution is a big one. Um, that we're unfortunately um, becoming more more exposed to. I'm also thinking our water, and even we think we're doing the right thing with bottled water. Um, look at you know at the endocrine disruptors in bottled water. It's quite alarming, really. Yes, yes, and as I said, just our detox pathways are just becoming so jammed. Yes, that and no wonder we're getting more people with multiple chemical sensitivities and autoimmune disease because. You know, they just can't get themselves out of it and the immune system is completely overloaded. Yeah. I was actually listening to a, a, a an interesting show the other night that was talking about the pollutant levels in these dust storms. So because of, because of the way that we're developing um, various, not, not so much here, but it was in, in the middle, middle East where they get these huge dust storms and the dust storms pick up toxins. And as they move across planets, uh, across countries, they actually are picking up more and more pollutants. So when they actually hit, um, I think South Korea was where they were finally hitting. Apparently the dust is so toxic. The kids in schools walk around with masks all day, every day, and every classroom has to have multiple air filters. Yeah, that's astounding. Um, I've actually been reading about microplastic exposure in the air as well. Um, and the ocean. And the ocean, yeah, and our drinking water and, and food, actually. Yeah, it's quite quite alarming and we, we still don't even have a basic understanding of what they could potentially do to our body. <laughs> No, and they the, the problem is they last for so many years. Yes. Like it's not as if you can just say, all right, I'm going to detox that out of the system. It can Some of them are living in your system for 100 years. Exactly. Yeah. So I and I think the answer to all our, you know, in terms of our wish list, we have to detox. But the problem is, and this is another thing I'm teaching a lot of my practitioners. We have patients now because if you think about five years ago, someone came and said they didn't really feel very well. Um, you know, you put them on a, maybe a detox program and they come back and say, you know what, Wendy, I actually feel really good now. Yeah. I'm, I'm much better than I was. But you try and do that now. There are some patients where they can't take one supplement. They actually have a problem just drinking water. And so these people, I think, are the ones that are jammed. Bile is jammed. They're not making taurine. They have insufficient methylation to make phosphatidylcholine. They just can't move toxins out of the body. Then you look at all the glutathione snips on top of that. Yes. You know, and glucuronidation and all of these pathways have to be supported. Absolutely. I'm such a fan of calcium deglucrate because I really think it's probably the number one priority, particularly when you've got these super sensitive patients yes. because 
if that's jammed and you've got all these endocrine disrupting hormones and you've got the estrogen dominance, we really need that glucuronidation pathway working. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Carolyn, that's been a really insightful conversation. I think we went quite deep there. So (laughs) um, I'm sure that our listeners will get a lot out of it. So thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. And thanks for tuning into this episode today. We appreciate your support and feel free to leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you. 